0: If you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me to the book of James, James chapter 2, as we continue our summer trek through this general epistle. In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi, one of the uh, most popular Indian activists and Hindu leaders that we know of, wrote that during his student days when he was in college, he actually studied seriously the gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he was excited to find in there, as he read, that Jesus seemed to have the key that would overcome the caste system of India, that would overthrow this social stratification that had, he felt, oppressed his people for so long. And he actually considered converting to Christianity, according to his autobiography. So much so that one Sunday, he attended a nearby church in Calcutta, looking to speak with the minister and and ask him a few questions and perhaps even become a Christian, However, as the story goes, he showed up at the church and the usher at the door refused to give him a seat and said, you need to be with your own people. It says that Gandhi left that church and never returned. He said, if the Christians have a caste system, why don't I just remain a Hindu? And we hear that story, stories like it, and we rightly shake our head in disgust. What a... Missed opportunity. What a failure of the body of Christ, right there. We know that discrimination can have dire consequences, not just in the lives of individual people, but also for the mission of the church. Right there is a picture of the fa- a, fa- a failure of the mission of the church as it came to its doors. And as we come to the second chapter of James this morning, we, we find the apostle James sets his sight on just that same issue. Prejudice and bias and favoritism going on within the church. And he wants to root it out from in its midst. And he, right up from the outset, he states his thesis in verse 1. He wants to make it very, very clear what he is about to talk about. And James says, here we go, brethren, faith and favoritism are incompatible. They do not go together. They cannot coexist. They are antithetical. Mature faith and favoritism in the church do not go together. Verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, My brothers and sisters, as we've learned in James's epistle and as we will continue to see, as James gives these forceful admonitions to the church, sometimes rebuking, he oftentimes buffers them with a term of endearment like he is here. Dear brothers and sisters, dear brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, Don't show favoritism. He cannot be much more clear than that with his thesis. Don't show favoritism. Clear and forceful. Don't play favorites in the church. Don't discriminate. Get rid of any prejudices. Those are all inconsistent with the faith you profess to have. Now, if you think back to last week, and Dr. Jim took us through the second half of chapter 1, there's a part in verse 22... When James says, don't be just hearers of the word. Be doers of the word. Don't just hear the commands of God on your life, but carry them out. Don't just collect knowledge about God, but it should affect the way that you live. And then James likens it to looking in a mirror. You remember this? Someone who hears the word of God and does not apply it to their life is like a man who sees his reflection in the mirror and goes away and forgets what he looks like. In other words, it's like the Bible is the mirror, it's showing me what I'm actually like, and I heed the rebuke, I hear the correction, and I turn around and forget what it is. And in the same way, this passage in chapter 2 that we're going to tackle this morning is really an application of that truth. James isn't thinking that people in the church don't know that prejudice is wrong, that discrimination is wrong. They do. We do. No, no thinking Christian is going to say, no, it's okay to show favorites. It's, o- it's okay to discriminate. No. But what James is going to do is hold the mirror up to us and say, you say that this is wrong. You say that discrimination in the church is, is not advantageous to the mission of the church. Do you walk the walk? He's not trying to convince us that this is an important truth. He assumes that we know it is. But he's saying, does your life reflect the truth that you confess? Is there discrimination in your life? You say favoritism is wrong, it's harmful, it's dishonoring to God, but in actuality, do you allow its stench to linger in your midst? And just like any sin, sometimes we don't even know it's there. We need the Word of God to illumine that and show us that, and that's what we're going to pray for this morning. Now, in case there's any confusion as to what James means in his thesis when he says, don't show favoritism he presents an illustration starting in verse 2 that clarifies what he's talking about. He says, don't show favoritism. And in case you don't know what that looks like, let me give you an example. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. Okay, So we have these two characters in this illustration. And they're coming into a meeting of God's people. The first shows up in a brand new luxury automobile out of which he emerges in a cloud of designer labels and jewelry. First impressions, influential, affluent, important, great person to be around. We want to be around this individual. But across the parking lot, a second man arrives at the same time, this one driving a mid-90s Civic with a hole in the muffler. Anyone had one of those? This one's dressed in dated, well worn clothing. So much so when you see this person, you think, relatively impoverished, uninfluential, not that important. It's important to, to see here, though, that James in this passage does not condemn either man for their wealth. You notice that? He's not saying the wealthy man is wrong. He's not saying the poor man is wrong. He's not saying they're in favor, they're in favor. He just states they're the people. This is who shows up at the meeting of God's people. The condemnation comes against the congregation and how they receive them. The the, the condemnation comes in how they seat the two people based on how they appear. And that comes in verse 3. So these two different characters show up at the meeting. And James continues, If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or, sit on the floor by my feet. Already, we wince at that. How awkward. Who would, who would possibly do that? They, these, these people, they know nothing about these men other than their first impressions, and yet they treat, them, they treat them radically different. they not? You sit in this prime location. You sit behind the pastor's kids. You know. <laughs> or something worse. You know, Sit under my feet. Sorry to the Kembers, who are always there, enduring, storing up rewards for themselves. But it's clear that they don't know anything about these two men, aside from first impressions, and they seat them based on those knee-jerk reactions. This is an illustration of the thesis, don't show favoritism, do not discriminate, do not allow biases to affect how you act with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And James concludes, with an obvious implication of this hypothetical scenario in verse 4. If you do this, he says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In other words, if you behave like this, have you not caused division based on the assumption that one believer is better and more worthy of attention than another, just based on how they look? based on how you perceive them. Are you not chopping up the body of Christ? And James says, this is evil. This is directly opposed to the unity that we're supposed to be celebrating, the unity that we're supposed to be enjoying, and the unity we're supposed to be modeling to a world that knows nothing of that kind of unity. We are united by something so much more significant than the things that could potentially divide us, the things that divide the world out there. We have something that unites us. And James is saying, if you divide the body of Christ like that, you are operating antithetical to the gospel that brought you into the body. And we know that favoritism and bias and prejudices, they, they don't only show up in issues around wealth, do they? Like James is using the illustration of, of wealth Creating these knee-jerk reactions, but we know its scope is far greater than just money. There are many opportunities for us to discriminate: occupation type, blue-collar, white-collar. What kind of work do you do? Marital status: married, single. What? The school I went to for seminary, we literally had two different buildings for married and single. And having spent time in both, I know that in the single place, they said they called it um, the Promised Land. They wanted to get to the promised Land. They wanted to get, is that not divide? That's not a church, but is that not dividing the body of Christ? We can think of all different ways to divide. If you have kids, if you don't have kids, if your kids go to public school or, or private school, assume spiritual maturity can divide us. So they they're the holy ones. I'm just I'm just new. Eye color, hair color, skin color. Martin Luther King Jr. Jr. famously observed that The most segregated hour of the Christian America is 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. That's when people get in their little pockets. He was talking about race, but we can say it could pertain to almost anything that we like to divide over. The ways we can potentially play favorites are no doubt many. We're creative in that way. And James is holding the mirror of the word up to us here at Oak Ridge, as well as to these believers in the first century. And reminding us that if we claim, and we do, that favoritism, prejudice, bias is wrong, then we need to take inventory of our hearts as individuals and collectively as a body. Is there any favoritism, discrimination, bias in my heart? Lord, search me. Root it out if it's there. Who are the people I gravitate toward on Sunday morning? Are there a certain group of people that I like to be? I'm just more comfortable around this certain type of people. And and if so, why? Who are the people that are, are typically at the top of my prayer list, that I pray for the most often? Maybe it's because they have a genuine need, but maybe there's something else going on in my heart that I need God to reveal to me. Who are the people I'm, I'm most likely to serve and love and feed and think about and, and contact through the week? Are there, are there people I, I try and avoid? If I'm honest with myself, are there, are there people that I would prefer if they didn't show up at my small group? If I'm really honest with myself, I need the Lord to search my heart. Lord, I don't think it's there, but show me if it's there. If favoritism is as wrong as James is saying it is, then I want nothing held back. I will look into that mirror, and God, help me not forget when I turn away. I want to root that out, because I don't want to do any damage to the gospel that causes us to be united. Do I play favorites? And if I do, what is the motivation? May God help us as a church to search our hearts and expose any resemblance of that nearsighted usher in James' illustration that sees the people coming in and says, good seat, bleachers, penthouse, basement. And to spur us on toward this goal of unity, James is saying, don't play favorites, and here's an illustration so that you know what I'm talking about, but to spur us on now, he provides us in the rest of the passage with, with motivation. Reasons we as a body and we as individual Christians should take this seriously. And and in the remaining verses from 5 through 13, I'm going to point out five motivating factors that James lays before us and says, be spurred on. Take this seriously. Try to root this out in your life. The first one is found in verse 5 and halfway through verse 6, and it's this. We want to root this out because we want to be like God. We don't want to show favorites We don't want to have discrimination in our lives because we want to be like God. Verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. He's saying that here's what God is like, and if you behave like the people in the illustration I just gave, you're nothing like God. Saying, if a church shows favoritism, they are not acting like the God they claim to serve. And we say, who and what does God favor then? What does he like? Think back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. You'll know this passage off by heart, most of you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. So who does God favor? Who does God bless? The poor in spirit. Not the, not the rich not the influential, not those of great reputation, not those who are good, the poor in spirit. Those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt, who have nothing to offer God, and come before Him in in desperation and dependence, and say, "God, forgive me." Those are the ones He says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom." Who show up in in spiritual rags and not designer clothes. You get the kingdom. That's who God blesses. And if that's who and what our God values, then God's people should value the same thing. It stands to reason. Who we value and what we value should reflect that of our God. So we want to avoid playing favorites in the church because we want to act like the God that we love and we serve. And God does not play favorites. He is impartial. He loves the poor in spirit, so we want to honor the same people. Secondly, it's kind of the other side of that coin. The second motivating factor in this passage is that we don't want to be like the world around us. We want to be like God, but we don't want to be like the world around us. Second half of verse 6 is a string of rhetorical questions that James poses to his readers. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? So you remember that the original readers, they were experiencing hardship, persecution, trials of many kinds, he said in the opening paragraphs of his letter. So they are experiencing hardships, and apparently, according to this, it was the rich and the powerful that were that were really laying it on them they were taking the screws to them it was the rich and the powerful that were using their influence and their clout to really oppress the believers at this time and and james is simply asking do you want to be like them they're the ones that are making it so hard for you they're the ones using their influence to drag you into court to to drag christ's name through the mud you want to be like them you want to be like the people who don't know christ and who are doing this because when you show favoritism in the church that's exactly what you're doing and so we have these two opening motivations for pursuing uh, unity and not favoritism in the church. One, we want to be like the God we serve. And two, we don't want to be like the world that knows not God. Third, we want to take seriously what God takes seriously. We want to take seriously what God... If God says something's important, we as God's people want to say amen. May it never be that God says this is important we shrug. We'll get to it. If God says it's important, we as God's people want to take it seriously. Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law, the king's law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. So James here is quoting Leviticus and, and probably quoting our Lord Jesus Christ as he quoted Leviticus when he was asked, what's the most important law? Of all of this law, Jesus, what's the most important? And Jesus said, love the Lord with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. These two are most important. And James reaches back and he says, if you really keep that law, you do well. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Just like today, I don't have to commit every crime to be labeled a criminal. How many crimes do I have to commit? One. I'm a criminal. And likewise here, James is saying that if you break one of God's laws, playing favorites, for example, which breaks the king's law, as he calls it, you're a lawbreaker. It only takes one. You become a lawbreaker. And as he's making the case here, discrimination, it violates one of the two commands Jesus held up as most important. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you are showing favorites, if you do what this illustration depicted, you are breaking that. And thus, you may not be a murderer, you may not be an adulterer, but you are a lawbreaker. As people, we love to create sliding scales and continuums that we can place people and ourselves on because it makes us feel better by comparison, right? Right? I'm not the worst driver in the world, but I'm not like some of the yahoos out there. So it makes me feel good about myself, right? I'm not not the smartest person in the world, but I'm also not the simplest. So, hey, it makes me feel good. Fortunately, we do the same with God's laws as well. I may look at porn, but I'm not a rapist. So I'm not not the worst. I may get angry from time to time. I may lose my temper, but i never murdered anyone. And James comes along this passage, and he just takes that scale right away. He removes that continuum. He says, you may not commit murder, you may not commit adultery, you may not do a whole lot of other things, but if you discriminate in the church, you are a lawbreaker, period. Don't let yourself off the hook by creating a continuum that God doesn't give you. Favoritism in the church is a big deal to God. We want to say, I mean, I mean, that's not, the church isn't going to fold over that. That's not that big of a deal, is it? It would be an oops. We'd apologize, we'd move on. James is saying, no, no, this is an important thing. God takes this very seriously because he takes the unity of the gospel so seriously. And this is dividing that. And if God takes it seriously, God's people should take it seriously. That's motivation number three. Number four, verse 12, is that we want to live in freedom. We as God's people want to live in the freedom that he's given us. James says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, or the law of liberty. We are under the law that gives freedom, according to James. It's, it's a call to live like. It's an invitation to live in the freedom that he has provided us. In Romans chapter 8, Paul, speaking of himself, he, he contrasts, These two laws, the law of Moses, the law of sin, and the law of liberty. He says in in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Christians have, have been liberated from sin and unburdened from the law of Moses. All of those rituals, all of those laws, we have been freed from that in Christ. We've been freed to love him with our whole heart, love our neighbor as ourselves. We've been freed to do that. The prison door has been swung open. The, the weight has been unburdened from our shoulders. And yet, when we sin, including the sin of favoritism, James here is saying, you are walking back into that prison, door, prison cell and closing the door behind you. You're picking up that burden, putting it voluntarily back on your neck. When you pick up sin, you are burdening yourself with a, with a, a burden that you have been freed from. You say, why would you do that? Why would you volunteer for slavery? Why would you do that? We want to live in freedom, and that freedom is truly experienced when we leave sin behind, including the sin of discrimination and favoritism in the church. We want to live in freedom. Fifth and finally, in verse 13, our closing verse, James says that we want to pursue this unity in the church and, and throw away favoritism because we want to be judged with mercy. We want to be judged with mercy. Verse 13, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over over judgment. You and I as Christians, need to understand that we are going to be judged. We are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We are not going to stand before the judgment seat that says heaven or hell. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That is secure. Our eternal security is locked in because of the Father's plan, the Son's promise, and the Spirit's guarantee. We are going to heaven. We will be in eternity with Him. But we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we've done with our life. You say, I gave you new life. I gave you talents. I gave you gifts. I gave you opportunities. What did you do with them? This isn't a popular teaching, I find, in modern-day evangelicalism, but it's Popular in the Bible, so it should be popular in our churches as well. Second Corinthians chapter 5, for example. Paul writing, he says, and he's writing, I remember, who's he writing to? Believers here, right? He's writing to Christians. So we make it our goal to please him. That's to please God, whether we are at home, in the body, or away from it. As Christians, what's our goal? It's to please God. What a great goal. That's our goal, to please God. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All who? All believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The things we've done in the flesh, the things we've done for our own sakes, they'll burn up, and we will be rewarded for what we've done for Christ's sake. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? That I will one day stand before an all-knowing, all-powerful, totally holy God, and he will see everything. Everything will be revealed. The hidden motives of my heart, everything will be laid bare before him. At that moment, I'll tell you what, I want mercy. I want mercy at that moment. And James is saying here, we can receive more mercy at that judgment seat if we show mercy to others, if we, in this context, do not show favoritism, if we do not discriminate from people, if we hold to the king's law and love our neighbor as ourselves in the church, he will be merciful for us on that last day, and certainly mercy will triumph over judgment. James calls the church to avoid showing favoritism. He makes that very clear from the outset treating people different based on how we perceive them. Do they fit the mold? Do they offend us in some way? Do they make me uncomfortable? James says, do not show favoritism. And he gives us a list of potential motivations after illustrating it. He says, "We, we, we don't want to show favoritism because we want to be like God. We want to be like the God we serve. We don't want to be like the world around us. We as God's people, we want to take seriously what God takes seriously. And we want to live in the freedom he offers and And we want to be judged with mercy in the end. I don't know about you, but for me, any one of those reasons could be enough to pursue unity in the body. But the cumulative impact of all five is more than enough. Don't show favoritism. Pursue unity in the body. As God's people, we are to obviously love the whole family of God. If you were to boil this passage down to a divine mandate, a divine burden that he is placing on the body of Christ. It's that. We as God's people to love the whole family of God. Why? Because we are just that. We are a family. And everything that unites us together, one God, one baptism, one faith, One Lord, one gospel, one Holy Spirit, on and on, one church, all of this, that unites us, that is so much deeper and so much bigger than all these comparatively superficial things that we find to divide us. He's saying, don't show favoritism because you are undermining and becoming a bad testimony for that gospel that has brought you into Christ and united you in Christ. We are to love the whole family of God. That is our mandate this morning. From James's pen to us. So we would say, May God help us be a church full of people who refuse to play favorites and instead generously lavish love upon one another indiscriminately. Let's pray to those ends. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not discriminate, that you sent your Son to die for the sins of the whole world. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet rebels, Christ died for us. Father, may we follow your example in the church, in the body of Christ. May we tear down the walls that might divide us, the walls of hostility that the culture around us still keeps up. May this be a place, your church, may it be a place of, of safety and camaraderie and singing hallelujah together and confessing together and carrying one another's burdens and everything that you have called your church to be. We pray specifically for Oak Ridge Bible Chapel that if there is any favoritism in any of our hearts or all of our hearts collectively, if there are any blind spots, Father, by your Spirit, please reveal those to us, that we may mortify them, that we may kill them, so that the gospel of unity, the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, may shine forth uninhibited. For your glory we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing one more song to you, and this will serve as our benediction in closing.